Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, would you speak into us your words of life? Would you help us have a good beginning to a holy Lent? We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Well, friends, and so it begins. Lent. We cross over a great threshold today. Ash Wednesday is, I think of it as the doorway opening inward to the heart of God. And the best and the briefest description I can give you of Lent is this. And I've, I've taken this from someone, from Alexander Schmemann, but it's a really good one. It's a bright sadness. Lent is a bright sadness. It is sad because there are things that grieve the heart of God. Just look around in the world in any given moment and look at the brokenness and the violence and the harm. We live in a landscape that is scarred by sin. We live east of Eden, it's said. Chesterton said that the doctrine of original sin is really the only part of Christian theology that we can prove. (laughs) Which makes sense, doesn't it? When you look at the brokenness of the world. But we don't have to look outside. We don't have to look out there at those people necessarily to see that we have reason to grieve because our sin is part of the problem too, right? Um, we have met the enemy and he is us. Wow, you guys are good. Okay. Our own sin is part of the problem too. So in a contemplative season like Lent where we reflect on the wages of sin, we can't avoid the sadness because to do that would be to deny reality. And we're not called to do that as Christians. But Lent isn't all sadness. It doesn't devolve into hopelessness. It doesn't devolve into uh, despair. That forgets the the first part. It's a bright sadness. It's bright because repentance is always unto something redemptive. Always. Brokenness is not the final word. We repent and we receive forgiveness. Even though our hope begins in ashes, Lent has a hopeful trajectory. So it has a bright aim to it. So during Lent, and then we'll move on to the passages, we focus on repentance. So we're called to greater surrender. We're called to yield sinful practices, which we've adopted into our lives, as God reveals them to us. And here's the way I like to think of it. It is a season of emptying our hands. Okay, It's a season of letting go of things. You let go of sin. You let go of the idols that cling tenaciously to you and that maybe perhaps you cling tenaciously to as well. It's a season of letting go and emptying our hands of the things that are not good for us. God doesn't ask you to give up anything that isn't isn't good for you and isn't beneficial to you. So this is letting go of things that aren't good for you. So that our hands can be filled with the right things, (laughs) with good things, with kingdom things, with gifts, seed to sow, deeper communion with God and each other. Okay, So it's an emptying of our hands so they can be filled with the right things. That's the purpose. So Lent is certainly a season of sacrifice. It's an intentional, chosen, and let me stress that, prayerful sacrifice done for the right reasons. Excuse me. So we set aside and we mark out space for God to speak and to move and to act very intentionally. And it can be a rather intense season of spiritual house cleaning. Okay, there's a little bit about Lent. Let's move into Joel 2 now, uh, 1 to 2 and 12 to 17. So in two of our lessons today, you probably heard this, in the Joel passage and in the Gospel reading in Matthew, uh, they both make it abundantly clear that people might be convinced by appearances (laughs) and a good show, uh, but God is not. God sees through that. He sees straight to the heart. The Lord knows better than anyone that behavior cannot, can be, excuse me, can be faked. It's always easier to change our behavior rather than our hearts, right? 
Jesus castigated the Pharisees again and again for this reason. Look, guys, you look good on the outside, but you're a whitewashed tomb on the inside. So in Joel 2, the fasting and mourning are to be an expression and outpouring of repentance. Okay? Fasting and mourning are to be the sacraments of a broken heart and a yielded will. Uh, now, if you heard the first two verses of Joel, uh, clearly, uh, they're, they're fairly uh, potent and foreboding. Uh, the passage begins with the trumpet blast and, and those foreboding words, as I said. And it's the blowing the shofar, the ram's horn. That signified a call to gather and worship, often for festivals. That was often so common under the law. But it also heralded something else, the coming of an army. <laughs> it signaled an invasion. It was like a sounding of the alarm. So here I think the trumpet blast, the beginning of Joel 1, signifies both. I think it's a callback to true worship. Okay, And it's also the sounding of the alarm of the imminent judgment of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, so prepare yourselves. Get ready. That's the prophet's uh, long-standing call to the people. You move into verse 2, and things don't look a, a lot better. <laughs> the tone becomes more ominous, more foreboding. It even gets apocalyptic. Now, the army spoken of there is a metaphor for the swarm of locusts that will come. That's the darkness and gloom that speaks of covering over the land bringing desolation to their crops. Now that's agricultural ruin for Judah. They're dependent, they're connected to the land for their food and sustenance. So that could lead to things like famine. And the Jews remember the locusts, don't they? Not a real good association there. That was a plague against uh, Egypt. That was a judgment against Egypt. So not a great association when you hear about locusts in the scriptures. Now the prophet Joel likely knew the high cost here as well. Tradition holds that he himself was a farmer a worker of the fields. So this picture of devastation is judgment brought against Judah because of their unfaithfulness. Now if we stop at verse 2, we're kind of left with, is this the end? <laughs> is that it? Does the story end here? Does judgment have the final word? Thankfully not. Proceed to verses 12 through 14. The big call there is basically to return or to repent. And when repent, when we speak of repentance in the scriptures, um, that means doing a 180. It means you're going this way, and instead you turn back around, you begin to walk in the other direction. So it's a change of course, and moving in the right direction is what counts in the scriptures in our spiritual lives, right? Direction is what counts. You're not going to get all the steps right. Moving in the right direction, proceeding, is, is, what, is where it's at. So better to stumble in the right direction than to not move at all, right? And the big call here that I want to underline in 12 through 14 is return to me with all your heart. Return to me with all your heart. Some translations say with your whole heart. And you know, we can almost pack it up right now and say, hey guys, that's the Lenten call. That's it. Return to me with your whole heart. It can be boiled down to that. Though judgment is present, it's not too late. This returning, this repentance is always connected to restoration. God does not bring his people low just to humiliate them. Jesus already took on humiliation and judgment upon himself on the cross. God brings us low to restore us, to renovate us, to rebuild us. Repentance and restoration always go hand in hand. The way up is the way down. That's the promise of Christianity. Now we get hints of this restoration of 14. It says, who knows? The Lord may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. So not only may he relent, he may leave a gift. That's the blessing piece. And the nature of the gift, if you read on, grain offerings and drink offerings. Now, those are worship images. 
This is a picture of restored worship and restored communion with the Lord. Consolation offered in place of the desolation of the ravaging locusts. So God calls for a return to worship and to communion with him at its heart. And he assures us of his provision for worship and life to continue. In other words, God will provide the lamb. Okay? God will provide the lamb. We move to verses 15 to 17. There's another trumpet blast there, if you noticed it. And it's a summons. It's an all hands on deck. It says, consecrate a fast. Everybody stop what they're doing. Everybody, not just the priests. Everyone in all stations of life, from the old to the newborn, all are involved. Even the newlyweds. The picture is interesting. It's the bride and the bridegroom. They're literally about to consummate their relationship, and it's saying, time out, stop. If you, uh, I'm going to date myself here, if that's okay. Uh, you guys remember the fire drill? Stop, <laughs> drop, and roll? Anybody remember that? Yep. Some of us? Okay. It's that kind of urgency. Stop, drop, and roll, okay? Uh, I grew up in Texas and had many, many, many tornado drills in school. And we knew exactly what to do when we had that alarm, that certain bell sound. We knew what to do. So there is an urgency here with the trumpet blast. There's a summons. Everyone had to assemble before the Lord. Why? Because corporate guilt requires corporate repentance. Corporate guilt requires corporate repentance. What does it look like to repent as a community? And the call is to return to the temple, to assemble there. Again, return to true worship, to communion with God, worshiping God with your whole heart. The picture is literally one of everyone, everyone, convening and converging at the temple and repenting as a people, acknowledging corporate guilt, dealing with this communally. So I find this a bit of a challenging call because Lent can be a fairly individualistic and private affair, right? But this picture, man, it's anything but that. God's call is a public communal call to repentance. And just to kind of turn up the heat here and paint the picture a little more vividly, uh, it says that the priests are to stand between the porch of the temple and the altar of burnt offering, which if you're thinking, okay, and that means what? <laughs> that is right in front of the door of the Holy of Holies, right there. What a picture. They're to stand there and, and treat the Lord with tears who is enthroned in the sanctuary. What a poignant, what a striking image. The people of God gather by his temple, the priest, right by the door to the Holy of Holies. Striking. Now, in the history of the church, repentance almost always precedes revival. You see this in the movements of history. Now, sometimes I think the urgent and sometimes hysterical call for revival wouldn't be so necessary if we kept up on our regular spiritual house cleaning. You know what I mean? If we lived more oriented to repentance as a way of life, and that's why we practice it every week in our liturgy, for that very reason. Okay, so let me give you some things to think about uh, as we close here. What might a good Lent look like? And I want you to think of this in two realms, as a community and as an individual. So what might a good Lent look like for us as a community and for you as an individual? Three things. One, I think it means we're willing to ask uncomfortable questions. We're willing to ask uncomfortable questions like this one, which I don't have an answer to, but I want to entertain it. As a church, do we have anything to repent of? Gulp. <laughs> think about that. As a church, do we have anything to repent of? That's worth our thought and prayer, right? Does our sin grieve us? 
Does it grieve us? Does it cause us any dismay? Not in a general sense, though, you know, that's easy to see in our fractured world, the fall and such. Uh, For you, does your sin grieve you? Does it weigh heavy on your heart? you feel that? Do you connect to the basic fact that just when sin makes the cross a necessity, a path which Jesus willingly chose? Okay? So one, are we willing to ask uncomfortable questions during Lent? Ask those of the Lord and each other, I think, in a way. Two, um, what might a good Lent look like for us as a community, as, as, as individuals, excuse me? Um, we journey through Lent together as a community. We make an effort to journey through Lent together as a community. We are the body of Jesus. We're known as the household of God, the kingdom of priests, uh, the kingdom of living stones. I mean, all these things. Our life is not our own. We belong to each other. We belong to each other, okay? Uh, and journeying together is wise and good. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. Fellowship is meant to be an encouragement and a strength. But like a marriage, it takes intention and it takes work okay, to do community. So how can you invite others into your Lenten journey this Lent? How can you do that? How can we do this together? How can we do life together during Lent? Uh, and I don't know that this applies necessarily to anybody here, but I'll say it anyway because it's written down. You have to read what's written, right? Um, here's an action point. Join a pastor. Put some skin in the game. If that's, uh, that might, that's one entry point. That's my official plug. But the point is there are other ways to connect. And my point is journey through Lent as a connected community rather than isolated individuals. Okay? Does that make sense? So that's number two. Journey together through Lent as a community. Three, uh, you brass tacks folks will appreciate this. Let's get down to some pragmatics. Father Joel, okay, I'll do that. Uh, Use the Lenten tools at your disposal. Use some of the Lenten tools at your disposal. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. There are more than two, but I'm going to give you two. You heard some of them in the uh, liturgy already. Um, one would be uh, practice the three Lenten disciplines. Okay, contemplation, fasting, almsgiving. Okay, practice those. Contemplation. Set aside time to abide with the Lord. Set aside time to study His Word, to be in His Word. Be more intentional about that. Okay, maybe even do it as a group. How about that? Um, fast. So you may choose to go. You know, there's a day a week I'm going to fast. Or you may choose to fast from a meal uh, each day or something along those lines. But fasting and almsgiving. And this is simply increasing your giving beyond what you give. So maybe if you're not giving consistently, you vow to give consistently. Uh, If you're giving consistently, you go above and beyond that, which is the New Testament example. So the three Lent disciplines, that's one of the tools in your toolbox. Contemplation, fasting, almsgiving. The second one, which we'll actually get to in just a moment, is the litany of penitence. The litany of penitence. Uh, These are the prayers that we're going to read. And they cover a lot of ground. They sort of leave no stone unturned in terms of uh, areas where we fall short. So what I would encourage you to do is keep your bulletin, take it with you, and read and reread and meditate on the litany of penitence during Lent. As I read, the Lord reveals things that I need to take leave of, and some, certain things pop out at me um, more so than others. These are places that I need to return to Him. So use the litany of penitence, okay? Those are three, three things for uh, the formula for a good Lent, so to speak. Um, I would say this, you don't always enter Lent knowing what needs to go. Uh, most years, I don't. Uh, it usually is revealed to me 
over time. The giving up, the letting go, the surrender, it just sometimes it just comes over time. But be willing to ask the question, okay, Lord, what needs to go? What needs to go? And you're going to have to God, give God some permission to sift you during this season. You're going to have to invite him in to the messy parts of your heart. Allow him to work. Allow him to heal. Allow him to sift you a bit. Okay. And can I implore you during this season, don't forget God's heart towards you. Because Lent can be a very heavy season, right? It really can. But I don't want you to forget God's heart towards you. We can be tempted to think that God might dislike us doesn't approve of us, maybe he seeks to punish us a little bit, or maybe that he simply doesn't care. Um, Remember, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. That's what beckons us to return home, the kindness of God. So in a few moments, uh, right after this, I'm going to mark you with ashes. And there are two things that are happening there and reasons that we do that. Uh, One is to remind us that we are mortal flesh and blood. Okay, in other words, we're fragile. We're finite. Remembering that God fashioned us in the beginning from the dust of the earth. But it's more than just mortality because that would be uh, all sadness, no brightness, if you follow my meaning. Uh, the second piece is that the ashes are an ancient biblical symbol of repentance and humility. So the ashes are intended to send you into Lent with a trajectory, okay, and with a purpose. A broken and a contrite heart the Lord will not despise. Okay, So like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, God rushes to meet us in our repentance. Isn't that a beautiful image? And that is the bright hope of Lent, friends. All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.